Welcome to Macro Peace Theater. I'm your narrator, Emil Kalinowski, and today's essay comes to us from Germany. 170 years ago, Arthur Schopenhauer wrote The Wisdom of Life, and that was an essay from his final work. And in there, he discusses the nature of money and wealth and how people relate to it depending on their circumstances and how it's a relative perception, even though money is an absolute good. It's a short treatment, and I hope you do enjoy it. It's philosophical work, but the, the good news is it's not steeped in technical jargon and metaphysics. It's a practical, pragmatic explanation of money and its nature. Epicurus divides the needs of mankind into three classes, and the division made by this great professor of happiness is a true and a fine one. First come natural and necessary needs, such as, when not satisfied, produce pain, food and clothing, victus et emictus, needs which can easily be satisfied. Secondly, there are those needs which, though natural, are not necessary, such as the gratification of certain of the senses. I may add, however, that in the report given by Diogenes Laritius, Epicurus does not mention which of these senses he means, so that on this point my account of his doctrine is somewhat more definite and exact than the original. These are needs rather more difficult to satisfy. The third class consists of needs which are neither natural nor necessary. The need of luxury and prodigality, show and splendor, which never come to an end and are very hard to satisfy. It is difficult, if not impossible, to define the limits which reason should impose on the desire for wealth. For there is no absolute or definite amount of wealth which will satisfy a man. The amount is always relative, that is to say, just so much as will maintain the proportion between what he wants and what he gets. For to measure a man's happiness only by what he gets, and not also by what he expects to get, is as futile as to try and express a fraction which shall have a numerator but no denominator. A man never feels the loss of things which it never occurs to him to ask for. He is just as happy without them. Whilst another, who may have a hundred times as much, feels miserable because he has not got the one thing he wants. In fact, here too, every man has a horizon of his own, and he will expect as much as he thinks it is possible for him to get. If an object within his horizon looks as though he could confidently reckon on getting it, he is happy. But if difficulties come in the way, he is miserable. What lies beyond his horizon has no effect at all upon him. So it is that the vast possessions of the rich do not agitate the poor, and conversely, that a wealthy man is not consoled by all his wealth for the failure of his hopes. Riches, one may say, are like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. And the same is true of fame. 
The loss of wealth and prosperity leaves a man, as soon as the first pangs of grief are over, in very much the same habitual temper as before. And the reason of this is that as soon as fate diminishes the amount of his possessions, he himself immediately reduces the amount of his claims. But when misfortune comes upon us, to reduce the amount of our claims is just what is most painful. Once that we have done so, the pain becomes less and less, and is felt no more, like an old wound which has healed. Conversely, when a piece of good fortune befalls us, our claims mount higher and higher, as there is nothing to regulate them. It is in this feeling of expansion that the delight of it lies. But it lasts no longer than the process itself, and when the expansion is complete, the delight ceases. We have become accustomed to the increase in our claims and consequently indifferent to the amount of wealth which satisfies them. There is a passage in the Odyssey illustrating this truth, of which I may quote the last two lines. The thoughts of man that dwells on the earth are as the day granted him by the Father of gods and men. Discontent springs from a constant endeavor to increase the amount of our claims, when we are powerless to increase the amount which will satisfy them. When we consider how full of needs the human race is, how its whole existence is based upon them, it is not a matter for surprise that wealth is held in more sincere esteem, nay, in greater honor than anything else in the world. Nor ought we to wonder that gain is made the only good of life, and everything that does not lead to it pushed aside or thrown overboard. Philosophy, for instance, by those who profess it. People are often reproached for wishing for money above all things and for loving it more than anything else. But it is natural and even inevitable for people to love that which, like an unwearied Proteus, is always ready to turn itself into whatever object their wandering wishes or manifold desires may, for the moment, fix upon. Everything else can satisfy only one wish, only one need. Food is good only if you are hungry, wine if you are able to enjoy it, drugs if you are sick, fur for the winter, love for youth, and so on. These are all only relatively good. Money alone is absolutely good, because it is not only a concrete satisfaction of one need in particular, it is an abstract satisfaction of all. If a man has an independent fortune, he should regard it as a bulwark against the many evils and misfortunes which he may encounter. He should not look upon it as giving him leave to get what pleasure he can out of the world, or as rendering it incumbent upon him to spend it in this way. People who are not born with a fortune, but end up by making a large one through the exercise of whatever talents they possess, almost always come to think that their talents are their capital, and that the money they have gained is merely the interest upon it. They do not lay by a part of their earnings to form a permanent capital, but spend their money much as they have earned it. Accordingly, they often fall into poverty. Their earnings decreased or come to an end altogether, 
either because their talent is exhausted by becoming antiquated, as for instance very often happens in the case of fine art, or else it was valid only under a special conjunction of circumstances which has now passed away. There is nothing to prevent those who live on the common labor of their hands from treating their earnings in that way if they like, because their kind of skill is not likely to disappear, or if it does, it can be replaced by that of their fellow workmen. Moreover, the kind of work they do is always in demand, so that what the proverb says is quite true, a useful trade is a mine of gold. But with artists and professionals of every kind, the case is quite different, and that is the reason why they are all well paid. They ought to build up a capital out of their earnings, but they recklessly look upon them as merely interest and end in ruin. On the other hand, people who inherit money know, at least, how to distinguish between capital and interest, and most of them try to make their capital secure and not encroach upon it. Nay, if they can, they put it by at least an eighth of their interests in order to meet future contingencies. So most of them maintain their position. These few remarks about capital and interest are not applicable to commercial life. For merchants look upon money as a means of further gain, just as a workman regards his tools. So even if their capital has been entirely the result of their own efforts, they try to preserve and increase it by using it. Accordingly, wealth is nowhere so much at home as in the merchant class. It will generally be found that those who know what it is to have been in need and destitution are much less afraid of it, and consequently more inclined to extravagance than those who know poverty only by hearsay. People who have been born and bred in good circumstances are, as a rule, much more careful about the future, more economical, in fact, than those who, by piece of good luck, have suddenly passed from poverty to wealth. This looks as if poverty were not really such a very wretched thing as it appears from a distance. Hmm. The true reason, however, is rather the fact that the man who has been born into a position of wealth comes to look upon it as something without which he could no more live than he could live without air. He guards it as he does his very life, and so he is generally a lover of order, prudent, and economical. But the man who has been born into a poor position looks upon it as the natural one, and if by any chance he comes in for a fortune, he regards it as a superfluity, something to be enjoyed or, or wasted, because if it comes to an end, he can get on just as well as before, with one anxiety the less. Or, as Shakespeare says in Henry the Sixth, the adage must be verified that beggars mounted run their horse to death. Among Schopenhauer's uh, chief contributions to the field of philosophy are his rejection of the idealism of his contemporaries and his embrace of a practical variety of materialism. You can hear that in his treatment on wealth and poverty and assets and property. 
Bakwa. He jettisons the traditional philosophic jargon for a brisk, compelling style that employs direct terms to express the metaphysics of the will. Direct terms indeed. He was a colleague of Hegel at the University of Berlin. Hegel was a systemic, elaborate idealist who Schopenhauer said and considered a charlatan and a windbag. Hilarious. Well, I hope you don't think your narrator a windbag, but lest I overstay my welcome, let me bid you a Wiedersehen. <laughs>